I want to share with you a little bit before we get into our study in Revelation chapter 9. Probably most, if not all of you, have been following along with what's been going on in San Bernardino. and It has a special and very sad, horrifying effect on me because I know personally one of those who lost their lives. And Michael leaves behind six beautiful kids. And a wife. My assisting pastor, who now pastors Calvary Chapel Running Springs, his wife was a co-worker to another one who lost his life. Pastor Jimmy Arate, Calvary Rancho Cucamonga's nephew, is among the dead. And we ask ourselves the question, why? Papers like the New York Daily News have the unmitigated gall to attempt to say that Perhaps prayer isn't the answer. God isn't going to solve this. Family, God's the only hope we got. And he's the only answer to what ails this country and this world. Second Chronicles chapter 7, a couple of verses you're very familiar with. But I think perhaps maybe if we had a little less arguing in Washington, a little more Bible reading, we might be better off. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So verse 12 begins in Second Chronicles 7. And it goes on, For when I shut up heaven, and there is no rain. Sometimes we wonder why we've been in such a drought. Sometimes we wonder why the climate's a mess. Sometimes we wonder why jobs are scarce. Sometimes we wonder why the world is in the mess it's in. I believe scriptures told us over and over and over and over again. When Madeline Marine O'Hare won that infamous court battle to remove prayer from schools, it has been a downhill run ever since 1963. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command that the locusts should devour the land or send pestilence among my people, I want you to notice that the hand that sends those things is the hand of God. Could it be that the Lord God in heaven is trying to get the world's attention? Could it be that we've had the answer all along and we've Chosen not to heed his voice. The verses that you're all familiar with, if my people were called by my name, that's God's people, God's house, and his house shall be called a house of prayer, amen? Will humble themselves. Stop trying to solve the problems themselves, get on their knees prostrate themselves, humble themselves, and pray and seek the face of Almighty God and turn from their wicked ways. Do you see it? There's no real repentance without turning from sin. And it's time that the church repented. It's time that the church stopped playing games with God. 
God speaking to national Israel, speaking to Solomon. But he speaks to us tonight. And I'm not pointing fingers at anyone sitting here. But I'm saying there are an awful lot of people who proclaim to be Christians. Including some people who are in very high offices in this land. People who are running for very high offices in this land. People who occupy our state house and our courthouse and our White House. And they speak out of both sides of their mouth. They say they're Christians. But they will not turn from their wicked ways. They still continue to call the death of an unborn child a woman's right to choose. They continue to say that the biggest threat we face is climate change. When I believe it's very clearly godlessness. They will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. The prophet Isaiah said, your sins have separated you from God so that he does not hear your prayers. Could it be that the reason that events like what happened yesterday continue to happen over and over and over, and like the one that happened two weeks earlier and the one three weeks before that, and on and on, and ISIS and all of the rest of it, could it be that God would wish that America would turn its eyes on him to look full in his wonderful face, and to remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Could it be? I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. He said, you want the secret? Turn from wickedness. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. God doesn't like the fact that he's been thrown out of our schools. God doesn't like the fact he's been thrown out of our White House and our State House and our Courthouse. This nation was founded on biblical principle. And in fact, James Madison said, the principal author of the Constitution, that is wholly suited for no other people than those whose people honor God. And my eyes and my heart will be forever there perpetually. But as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom. He was speaking of the throne that was occupied once by David. He was speaking of the government of the nation Israel. Could it be that the answer lies before us? I want to pray. I want to pray for the Wetzel family. I want to pray for the Adams family. I want to pray for the Ortiz family and the Orati family. But we also need to pray for our country. Because this stuff is going to keep happening until America turns its face towards heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, tonight we we cry out to you, God, because you alone are the answer. God, and we, with the prophets, say, we and our fathers have sinned against you. Lord, we by default, many of us, for having stood by and watched, for not having been bold, for not proclaiming your name, 
for failing to stand, Lord, when others kneeled. God, would you make us like Daniel the prophet? If the whole nation bows the knee to the bronze God, would we stand? God, we ask you to hear our cry. We ask you to turn our nation towards you. Lord, we fear for what will happen if we don't. God, we pray for rain. Lord, please, we know that you control when it rains. And we ask you to bring rain. But we ask you to bring holiness first and repentance. We ask you for every church that proclaims your name to be a house of prayer. We ask you, Lord, to move in our midst to change hearts and minds. We pray that you'd save the lost and you'd sanctify the saintly. Lord, that you would make us holy and acceptable. Lord, we pray for the Wetzel family. Lord, pray for Ann tonight. God, for all those kids. Dad's not coming home. Senseless. Senseless, Lord. We ask for Robert, for Bob, for his wife, for Chuck, for Debbie, for Jimmy and his family. God, would you be their comfort and strength? Lord, you alone are what we need. And may this country hunger and thirst for righteousness. Would you bring revival? And would it start with us? We honor you tonight. You're our guest of honor. Speak truth now through the power of your word to us. We ask these things in Christ's name, the matchless name, the name above every name. Amen. We turn to Revelation 9. We'll pick up in verse 13. All of these things that now unfold, all of these things that we call the Great Tribulation, all of these things that as we study them and look at them, one must draw the conclusion that they are horror, are also the outflow of very hardened hearts. Hearts that have gotten so hard that the voice of God is neither heard nor heeded. And so in that sense, what we face today is really a little window into what they will face then. Because a nation whose God is the Lord is blessed. But if we turn our backs, the Lord says, I will remove my hand from you. And when that happens on a global scale, and when it becomes the norm, Instead of a shocking event, instead of a horrific time in the history of any nation, God will one day judge the entire world. And I believe what we're seeing is the footsteps of the horses. On the morning of Abraham Lincoln's death, a crowd of nearly 50,000 people gathered outside the exchange building in New York City. Inside of that building, a man that would become famous some 16 years later. But the feelings in the country were one of fear, trepidation, worry, anger, hate, desire to seek revenge. Perhaps the greatest president this country has ever known 
brutally murdered in his box at Ford's Theater. On the balcony of that building, a very rotund man, if you travel out to the Mission Inn in Riverside, you can see the special chair that would be one day manufactured for President Garfield. But he stepped out from the exchange building. He said, fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are round about us. But around him, his pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of skies and justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne and mercy and truth go before his face. Fellow citizens, our God reigns. And the government in Washington still lives. We need that kind of boldness in our country today. Sadly, sadly, that would be mocked, ridiculed, and scorned if it happened today. That family is the problem. And so as we look at this passage, which includes some very hard hearts, here's the good news. God is still very much able. Our God still reigns, and he is still very much in control. He allows what he allows for his purposes. He neither caused what happened yesterday, nor did he ordain it. But because he's sovereign God, he absolutely did allow it. And if he allowed it, I believe it's for a purpose. And I believe that purpose is to turn men's hearts towards the Lord. It was interesting to me watching the news reports. Saw several people in those pictures that I personally know. Because I hung out with many of the pastors from the Inland Empire all kinds of different churches and denominations. And that's who I saw at the scene. I I didn't see any Buddhists. I didn't see any Hare Krishna people. I saw pastors who had the answers. May we be so bold. Doesn't matter what we're going through, doesn't matter what you're going through, I'm going through, or how chaotic the things look, or how our world is coming unraveled, because it is. There's no question. The world is a tenuous place, but God still has a plan. The fifth trumpet we saw Satan presented as a falling star, uh, unlock the the, the keys, take the keys and unlock the abyss and release this demonic horde. But I want to tell you something. Have no fear. Satan himself is bound by the sovereign plans of God. Job chapter 1, if you want to turn there, verse 6. Fascinating interaction between God and Satan himself. And it says there, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, now here's a fairly strange conversation between God and Satan, the deceiver. And God wasn't asking questions because he didn't have the answer already. He was asking questions to expose to you and I, as these words are recorded, exactly how Satan works. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? And so Satan answered back to the Lord and said, to going to and fro from the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you looked at the saints at Calvary Chapel South Bay? Have you checked them out? Have you watched what my people are doing? Have you looked to see what it is that God's people are up to? You could paraphrase it a bit. That there is none like him on the face of the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. 
And so Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, he's accusing God of stacking the deck, hedging the bets, making life so wonderful that of course Job was going to serve God. When you ask yourself the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, turn to this passage. Because here's a man that God bragged on. That's pretty high praise, amen? There's none like him on the face of the earth. There's no one as upright and as righteous as my servant Job. I would wish that God could say that about each of us. We'd have to fight for the righteousness award, amen? Wouldn't that be glorious? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? Notice the indignance with which Satan accuses, even in the presence of God. Around his household, around all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands, his possessions, you've increased him in the land, but now you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. Accusing God of being disingenuous. Not telling the truth. Making it so easy on his righteous people that of course they would serve. It's like the monkey puzzle. Monkey's going to keep going back for the banana. That's what Satan is saying about God. Doesn't matter what you put in there. You get him thinking that's where the bananas are at. He'll go back and do anything you ask him to do. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. That's what God said about the most righteous and upright man that walked on the face of the earth at the time. Have at him, Job. Have at him, Satan. Go for it. Only do not lay a hand on his person. In other words, you can't kill him. You can do anything short of killing him. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And what we have here is a picture and a way that we can understand what's going on in the world right now. Because if all God did, vast majority, maybe all of us in here tonight, are believers in Jesus Christ. We are saved, we're going to heaven, and we're good to go. The worst thing happens. But you see, not everybody believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best way for people to know that it's real is by God not overprotecting us. You see, when bad things happen to good people, when bad things happen to godly people, and we respond in a way that honors the Lord, God gets the glory for it. And so in essence, it's a little bit of a setup with God knowing exactly what's going to happen. Oh, was Job perfect? Read the rest of the story. You'll find out no is the answer. But at the end, Job got it. Can I say to you tonight, at the end, we're all going to get it. We'll all be known as he is known. We'll be righteous as he is righteous. But in the meantime... Bad things are going to happen to good people. The book of Revelation is that on a global scale. Because there are going to be people, you're going to look at it and go, hi, man, it's just not even fair. Don't ever doubt the justice, the mercy, the grace, and the fairness of God. I don't know why Michael's dead tonight. I don't know. I will have to ask God when I get there. But I can tell you what I do know. God's still a God of love. 
God is still compassionate and merciful and tender. And God has those six kids right in his hands. I know that. And so the world is watching. Satan is roaring. Whose side are we going to be on? On November 10th of 1994, story maybe some of you may have seen at the Times a while ago, 20 years ago, but a Baptist pastor named Dwayne Willis and his wife were driving home from a church event with their six children in the car. As they drove down the road, they hit something that was later found out to be part of a manhole cover. They hit that, it punctured the gas tank, the manhole cover sparked, it ignited all the fuel in the car, the two adults got out, the six children were burned alive in front of their parents' eyes. You see, Dwayne and his wife had a choice to make. Would they get angry with God? Would they get bitter with God? Would they question God? Would they concern themselves with trying to figure out why something like that could have happened to them? And at the end, he said, we miss our children terribly and we're grieved over their loss, but they were actually never our children. They were God's. That is what we need to remember. These things, were, I'm not going to be able to explain them to you. So if you call me and you want to make an appointment, you want to talk about these, I'm not going to be able to give you an answer that's definitive. I'm going to have to tell you the same thing that God said about Job. Do you trust me? Job finally said, I know that one day I will stand on this earth and I will see my Redeemer face to face. That's what Job said. And that's where we need to stand tonight. We ask the question, why God? It's a valid question, by the way. I don't want to get anybody thinking that it's somehow wrong to ask the question. It's not. God understands why we ask it. I do have some things that do come to mind. You see, sometimes these things strengthen our faith. Sometimes they draw us closer to him. They certainly are a test of our faith. Amen? So I was reading, finally, they're getting down to the bottom of some of these events. And I'm just going, man, this is a test. This is a test. Will we get... Angry? Will people retaliate in like kind? Or will it be a chance for the church to rise up? Get right with God. People are watching and they're looking to see what our response is. And we need to respond with hope. Because we are to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. It's an opportunity for us to share the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Satan's going to release his demonic locusts. And the world has hard hearts. But we have the answer. Verse 13 here in Revelation 9, And then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard the voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So again, the golden altar is the place where the high priest would go and put the incense. It represented the prayers of the saints. The saints are now coming up, and the prayers of the saints were, Why? How long, O Lord, will you allow this to go on? That's the why question. We pray that question, we ask that question, we mumble to ourselves that question, why, oh God? Why God? It wasn't workplace violence. 
It was two people demonically possessed. That spirit's in this world, and it comes in all kinds of forms. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. You see, as you look at these angels, there's a little bit of a difference here, and the reason I believe that these are fallen angels is that the angels that we saw back in chapter 7 who were holding the winds back were doing so at their own volition. These angels are actually bound. And so I believe that they are demonically, in other words, they're fallen angels. And so these fallen angels, as opposed to the holy angels of God, are standing at the boundary of what was at that time and should still be today, the eastern boundary of the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the river Euphrates. As they stand there, as they are previously bound, they're now going to be unleashed. You see, one of the things that we have a tough time understanding is the the world is getting more and more wicked, but it is by no shake of the imagination as wicked as it can get. It could get a lot worse, and it could get so in a grave hurry. And that's basically what these chapters are reminding us of. Yes, it's a dangerous world. I'm not planning on canceling our trip to Israel next year. We're going. Why? Because I trust the Lord our God. And frankly, we're safer in Israel than we are here. But the world is a mess. When you look at the river Euphrates, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 2, the river Euphrates actually flowed forth from the Garden of Eden. It was that natural dividing line. It's a massive river, by the way. It's some 1,700 miles long. It averages about 30 feet deep. It's between 3 and 12 miles wide. It's very similar to our Mississippi. Not quite as long, but in size and scope, it's huge. It was a natural boundary. But it also was the location of the world's first sin. So sin came forth out of that region of the world. It was there that mankind's sojourn was birthed on this earth. And it is also the birthplace of what most of the world is wrestling with. Militant Islam. Radical Islam. I'm not afraid to say it. And the reason I say that is is not to put shame on anyone. To say ignoring problems does not solve them. Failing to call them what they are does not solve them. And as much as political correctness has overcome our country, you have to identify what's going on. And the fact of the matter is, there is a fairly large portion of that religion that was founded in 620, 30 AD, that this is very normal behavior for them. And you can see it all over the world. I believe it's demonic. Who else could inspire such heinous acts but Satan himself? Angry people who are not happy with their job do not walk into some place and gun down 14 people dead, 21 people injured because they had a bad day at work. But God still allows and has a time for everything. There's a divine timetable. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and for the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Hold that number in your mind. Specific angels for a specific time. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you wish to turn there, the first eight verses, Solomon speaks of God's timetable on all things. 
purported, believed to be, I believe, rightly so, the wisest man to ever live. And it says there in verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Notice he doesn't say every good purpose, just every purpose. All purposes. Even the purpose of things that we don't understand, don't like, don't want, hate. God does indeed use all things, ultimately, for his plans and purposes. And for those who love him, he uses them for the good. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant. Uh, That shooting yesterday didn't take God by surprise. He knew. Could have even stopped it. Otherwise, he's not God. You realize that, right? God could not be God unless he at least had the capacity to stop that because that would leave him less than sovereign. There is a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war. And a time of peace. God has a timetable for everything. And we're now reaching the timetable in God's incredible eternal clock to where he is going to do something that we can't imagine him ever doing. You see, because of our own sin natures, we have quite a bit of compassion for fallen mankind, amen? I do. When I look at sinful mankind, when I look at what's going on in the world, when I look at the demonic oppression, the the rule and reign of tyranny all over the globe, I have tremendous compassion for people who, uh, especially those who don't live in this country. We are blessed beyond imagining, but it's not so in much of the rest of the world. I have a tough time understanding that. I have to trust God's word on it. There's a time for everything. And one of the toughest times for us to endure is the the time of waiting, isn't it? Is it hard for anyone else in here to wait? I am a lousy waiter. I do not wait well. My middle name should be Impatience. Jeffrey Impatience Gill. I'm not a good waiter. Even when I'm waiting on God. I want answers and I want them now. And yet scripture is so clear that from God's perspective, here in Isaiah 40, verse 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall be renewed in strength. Amen? Mount up with eagle's wings, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. You see, that is actually what we want. But the secret ingredient there is waiting on the Lord. Right now, God is in a holding pattern with his judgment. He's not poured it out. He's waited. And we're waiting for it. We have to suffer along with his waiting in that sense. I got to admit, there are times when I'm just like, you know, I I remember when the hunt for Osama bin Laden was on. I, I remember actually praying, God, you know what cave he's in. Just send a smart bomb in there. Seriously, I, I prayed that prayer. Like, you know where he is. This, is. this is crazy. Just take him out. And yet God didn't. Now, can I tell you why God didn't answer my, you know, probably because I, answered, I was praying it with a, with a motivation that wasn't, I don't know. But I know that he waited. He waited for years before he met SEAL Team 6. See, we don't know. We have to trust God. As you look at this, and I want you to put these numbers together, when you think about it, the fourth seal has come and gone, the sixth trumpet. 
When you combine these things, you're talking one half of the world's population has now disappeared. If that happened today, it'd be over 3 billion people. I'm kind of glad that God's waited. Amen? That's a lot of people. There's not, there's 350 million in the United States. Think of that for a second. That would be the population of the United States almost 10 times over. Gone. It's going to be a slaughterhouse. The next thing that happens comes on the scene, verse 16, and now the number of the army of the horsemen. And I want you to notice what's said here, the army of the horsemen. You all know that we still have cavalry, not cavalry, cavalry in our United States military. The army still has cavalry units, both ground and air. There's air cavalry, and there's also armored units called cavalry. Matter of fact, they're stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, strangely enough. And now the number of the army of the horsemen, the cavalry unit, was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. It's unique because when that's called out, it's a very specific number. And it would have been a number that would have been very tough to understand at that day and time because the world's population likely was not 200 million. So as John penned those words under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's writing a number that was inconceivable to him. And so it makes no sense that he would jot down a number like that if it weren't intended to be literal. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And notice he's seeing a vision. And those who sat on them had breastplates, fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow. Those happened to be the most common uh, of the colors of one particular nation, which we'll get to in a minute. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. Out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone, and these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire, by the smoke and brimstone, what came out of their mouths, for their power was in their mouth and in their tails, and their tails were like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now it's Interesting because we're actually now beginning these portions of the book of Revelation that overlap with other chapters because the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments which will follow uh, are, are the same events described from a different perspective. And so Revelation chapter 16, we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, the sixth bold judgment is an elaboration of what's going on here. And so in that fifth trumpet judgment, the demonic locusts come out. They're unleashed from the abyss. I believe this is a demonically inspired government that possesses the power to put together a 200 million man army. And they need to be east of the river Euphrates. Not too tough to figure that one out. It would have been impossible in John's day. But very easy in ours. That's why Daniel said in the last days... Knowledge will increase. We'll actually be able to understand things as the times progress of the end. We'll begin to have these things revealed and unfurled before us in a way that they will then make sense. And remember, he said to seal, to shut up that vision until the end times. And so John would have been going, I know, 200 million. That's everybody on the face of the earth. But that's not everybody on the face of the earth tonight, is it? It's not even close. A large amount would would be impossible even into the 1940s. If you know your history very well, during the Second World War between the Axis, the Allied uh, troops, there were about 70 million or so combined combatants between the two sides. That's in all of World War II. This is a huge, massive army. But if you notice the subtlety here, You'll see it as we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 16. You can go there if you like. We'll pick up uh, there in verse 12. But if you take those armies that are to the east of the Euphrates River, they would have no problem coming up together. And I believe that the secret there is the word kings. 
notice, and we'll review this when we get to chapter 16, but verse 12, Revelation 16, and the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up, and so we get another piece of information. So that the way of the, notice it, plural, in the original language is very clear, it was a plural use of the word kings. The kings from the east might be prepared. In other words, there would be a preparation by the drying up of the river Euphrates for a 200 million man army to march from the east towards Jerusalem. Specifically to the battle at Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo, which we will visit when we're there uh, in May. Notice it now goes on to say, And I saw three unclean spirits. So now we know that those angels were in fact unclean or unholy angels, unclean spirits, like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. The dragon is obviously a reference to Satan himself. And so Satan spews forth these demonic angels and look what they do. And out of the mouth of the beast, the mouth of the false prophet, uh, these are all three tied together. So the false prophet the Antichrist, the dragon, all together they form a, an alliance uh, as leadership for the Antichrist forces, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. And so this is a ramp up to the very final piece of the conflict. And behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. In other words, stays white stays pure, stays clean, stays righteous, just as Job was purported to be, so should those who come to Christ during those days be. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame and they gathered them together in a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. And so the preparation in chapter 9 leads up to this final bowl judgment, these last bowls, bowls six and seven, and the whole world is gathered together, arrayed in battle against Jesus himself. And so to accomplish that, something that, as you think on this 200 million man army, probably most of you, at least looking around the room, very few of you would have picked up a Time magazine in 1965, but if you had done so, Uh, There in the May 21st issue of 1965, you would have seen the cover story talking about what was then communist China. And in that issue, on page 35, you wish to go look it up, you'll find an article that in 1965 said that China could field a 200 million man army. They can certainly do that today, except they're far more well equipped today. And in fact, it's believed that they have a militia that may exceed 300 million. So China could be this nation, and certainly those colors mentioned there would indicate that perhaps it would be the communist Chinese government that would rise up and come to the defense. It's interesting what power does to people. And so as you think on these things, you have to remember that One of the great sources of wealth in our world is the proliferation of weapons technology. The sale of armaments to countries that do not have them. And you have three principal countries that are engaged in that particular endeavor. Of course, one of them is us. One is Russia. And the other is China. If Russia and China join together, guess where that leaves the U.S.? Outside of the power curve interesting completed in 1990 one of the largest hydroelectric plants in the world on the Euphrates River the Ataturk Dam more than a mile wide 565 feet tall or so spanning the Euphrates River with a containment basin that would allow for the entire Euphrates River to pour into it for a time of at least two weeks if the gates were shut without releasing a single drop of water. So there's even a way for these things to happen simply in battle today. 
unthinkable at the time that John wrote these words, but as that knowledge increases, so we can see that the Lord has actually allowed pieces of this puzzle to come together to where not only is it possible, but indeed would be very likely, because if you were going to try and push a column of soldiers, now imagine if you put a 200 million man army in a column, most of you have been to San Diego, you know it's a long ways that way. A column of 200 million men, if they were shoulder to shoulder, would be more than a mile wide and 87 miles long. You probably wouldn't want to put them in boats if they were going into battle and put them across a river that's three miles wide. We call that duck hunting. It wouldn't take a whole lot of air power to sink that army very quickly. But if they could move across that river bottom as if it were dry land, different story. Why does God allow these things? I can't tell you exactly, but I do know this that God has a time and a purpose for everything. And so he dries up the Euphrates River, does all these things in such a way that as we look at it, we absolutely know it's got to be the hand of the Lord. Horses of war gathered together. And as I already said, these armored units, I'm certain that's what's being spoken of here. And we call them that today. You travel to Fort Hood, Texas, Travel to the 1st Armored Division. Uh, They are the 1st Cavalry Division of the United States Army. Both air and land units. Massive army now begins to move towards Israel. And you see the reason that God does this is because of hard hearts. Notice the closing two verses. Verse 20. But the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Think about it for a second. So I'm watching the things unfold over the last 24 hours, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I I believe God wants to use these things to turn people's hearts towards the Lord How hard does your heart have to be to watch roughly one half of the entire world's population killed and they still won't repent? When God says there's a time to every purpose under heaven, it's exactly what he means. And there will be a time for his judgment. And it's going to be preceded By as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. Jesus made that clear. And that was a time of wickedness. When God said of the world, their hearts were continually evil. Family, the good news is, we haven't gotten there yet. The bad news is, We're headed there quick. So we have stuff to do. We have a part in all of this. This grand drama of the redemption of man. You've been given a part to play. You have a piece in this. They wouldn't repent that they should not worship demons. The idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood. Neither that those could hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders and their sorceries, nor their sexual immoralities or their thefts. And I would simply ask you to see this for what it is. When, when God lays this out here, what he's really doing is something that's fairly difficult for us to understand. And that difficulty is this. He's referring back to the Ten Commandments. Mankind hasn't learned much. God still means what he says and says what he means. And if you'll notice what he says, he says basically, look, you need to get rid of your false idols. Here in America, the chief idol is money. That's our idolatry. Materialism is probably a better way to understand it. 
You see, that was a direct affront to God himself. And so was that, that was the man-to-God aspect of the Ten Commandments. The first five were all Godward. The next five were manward, man-to-man. Don't take your neighbor's goods, don't commit adultery, don't murder anyone. You see, they're man-to-man. And so God says here as this unfolds, look, here's the problem. They wouldn't do what I say. It's the problem tonight. They were the work of men's hands. It's not the first time that's been said, by the way. The psalmist David actually said that in the 115th Psalm. The idols of silver and gold were the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. And feet, but they do not walk. They do not mutter through their throats. Those that make them are like them. And so are those who trust in them. You see, mankind makes gods in his own image. And I would say that's exactly what the problem is. Right now, the world is having to choose between two gods, itself and the true and the living God. For us, as for me and my house, as for you and your house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? That's the challenge for us. Are are we going to be bold with that message in our world? Are we going to speak forth that kind of truth in such a way that the world sees it, the world hears it, and the world at least acknowledges the fact that what we speak is with everything that we have? Because part of the problem is the message of the church is being spoken so weakly and so poorly and without such truth as to be meaningful. It's watered down. It comes from hundreds of thousands of pulpits. Well, you know, just kind of believe what you want to believe, and in the end, God just saves everybody. It's not what the Bible says. It says to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved, and you have to repent of your sin to be forgiven of your sin. Hearts can get pretty hard. And I pray there's not a single person in here who has a hard heart. And that we have the answer to the world's issues so we can remind the world of what the world needs to do. As these things come, people are going to ask you, what do you think of this stuff? Tell them the truth. Speak to your friends and neighbors before it's too late. People are going to manifest this type of fruit until the end comes. And we do still have time. And I love that. Romans chapter 1, we've already looked at it. We know what it says. God's going to pour out his wrath against all ungodliness. We know that. In the meantime, let's be salt and light. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we praise you. We honor you. We desire to be well-pleasing to you. And we invite you to change hearts and lives and minds even in this place tonight. We offer up our lives to you again afresh and new as living sacrifices. We pray that that which in us is your righteousness working out of us would be holy and acceptable to you. Lord, help us to not shame your name. Help us to be bold with our faith. Lord, we thank you that we do have the answers. Lord, help us to tell people what that answer is. The answer is Jesus. The answer is is the God who created us, alive and well in us, through Jesus Christ, his Son. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, and strengthen us for this season, God. It is, in fact, that season which we get to proclaim the name of Jesus the loudest throughout the year. May we be bold with that message. God, we love you. We thank you that you've redeemed us and set us free from the bondage of sin and death. We thank you that we've been spared from the wrath that is to come. And so, Lord, we give you afresh and anew our lives and dare you and ask you and beg you, Lord, would you work through us 
to accomplish your will on this earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.